Last week, I received this piece of listener mail from Susan. Quote, Tim, 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 we need more first page edits. Please, when you give them to us, don't hold back. We already see you as the benevolent father figure that you are. You are jolly and lovable, but also ruthless when we deserve it. Yes, yes, we know that we are not our writing and that we are inherently good and deserving of love. And this is why we trust you to wield the red pen. We don't need a safe word. We can turn off the podcast and quietly weep into our iPhones if we need to. We crave the punishment. There is no need to qualify your edits. Just let us have it. We won't hate you or resent you for it. We know you're doing it for our own good. So please beat us like the barely literate aspiring writers that we are. If anything, being strict will make us love you more. After a good thrashing, we will crave your kind words like a drug. We'll do anything for that sweet, sweet validation. Like your podcast? Sure. Buy your book? Anything for you, Daddy. Be the teacher we all had in high school that we obeyed and feared. We feared this teacher's disdain, or worse, their indifference. Be the high school teacher that Susan will remember when she goes off to college. She will go off to college and find a nice young man to date, but in the back of her mind she'll remember the one teacher she respected in high school. She'll remember that teacher and think to herself, this person I'm dating now is a boy. A nice young boy, but that's all he is. And she'll sit down with this boy and say, there is nothing inherently wrong with you as a person. You're a very nice boy. I'm sure you'll find someone someday, but I have to go. She will cry and walk out of Starbucks as fast as is socially acceptable. She will go to her car and sit in the driver's seat and not bother to take the keys out of her purse. She will stare at the steering wheel and think of Mr Clare, the strong high school teacher. She'll think of how he edited those first pages. She'll remember that time when she wrote something vague and he bent over her desk and whispered in her ear, This is wrong. She knew that she was wrong and he was right. She knew that Mr Clare didn't care what she thought of him. He only wanted what is best for her. That goes without saying. Knowing that he never needed anything from her made her feel free. She wanted more from him, but she knew that he could never give it to her. She'll carry that void with her for the rest of her life. She'll remember his warm breath on her ear and the words he spoke. Crunchy specificity. She'll remember this moment and think, God damn it, I wish I had more first page edits to listen to. End quote. So, so first of all, uh, that was a very well composed letter, Susan. Well done. I must admit, when I started this podcast talking about adverbs and the inappropriate use of a subordinate clause, the tone I was shooting for wasn't precisely cruel, sexually predatory teacher. But as with so many aspects of the creative arts, one finds the audience tends to impose their own preoccupations onto the work. I'm afraid I'm more of the whips his acoustic guitar out in class for an impromptu rendition of Cat Stevens type of teacher than the see me after class variety. Anyone wishing to euthanise their animal desires in the drowning pool of my authority is going to come away very disappointed indeed. Secondly, putting the incongruously uh, kinky trimmings to one side for just a moment, 
What a good idea. It has been entirely too long since I did a vanilla wholesome bit of first page editing. So that's what today's episode is. Me taking a listener's first page, strapping it prone across a table with a couple of leather belts and giving it a jolly good, safe, consensual, age-appropriate thrashing with the studded paddle of my considerable editorial experience. Our safe word today is Shrek 4. I've got some vegan flapjacks cooling on a wire rack for afterwards, and if you'd care to book your own appointment in my lexical dungeon, listen to the end, where I'll explain how, while trying to bilk you for money, oh yes, I do financial domination too, you love it. Right, are you happy? Comfortable? Hankering for a spankering? By the way, don't worry, I'm not going to make questionable kink jokes throughout the entire episode, that's it now, that little tube of comedy toothbrush has uh, squirted its last... Great. Follow me. Welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our manifesto. One to help you write more, two to help you write better, and three to help you be a little bit happier as you do so. So, um, okay, if you want to read along today... You can go to my website, timclairpert.co.uk, or there's a link in the show notes to this particular blog, or you can just Google me or Death of a Thousand Cuts, and I, I put this extract in a blog post. Today's uh, first page is called Stone Fist, and it's by Simon. Thank you very much for submitting, Simon. Sabrin stepped from her cell into a cool evening. The gibbous moon was low and tangerine. She approached the iron railing in front of her. The river Azar split letter down the middle like a gleaming scar. Gigantic braziers burned away to her left and right, illuminating bronze statues of hooded figures battling octopi and betraying her location. Why was she being held on the embassy bridge? A curfew bell pealed in the distance and Sabrine's stomach dropped with sudden realisation. A thundercrack. One, two more. The ground jarred. Pigdan and his dynamite had finally delivered on a promise. But this was supposed to be a distraction. She was supposed to be on the other side of Letter, pulling her brother's heart from his chest. Reaching him now is impossible. She'd failed. A series of muffled blasts came from either end of the bridge. The twin statues erupted, expelling fragments of hot bronze. The broken edge of a metallic tentacle glanced Sabrin's cheek. A cold streak below her eye suggested it had drawn blood. She struggled to keep her balance as the bridge began leaning, its flagstone path split and creasing. She staggered against the balustrade and watched the surface of the river swing into view beneath the railing bars. A great rust-coloured head scraped past her, launched into the river with a deafening gong and terminated in a bloom of surf. The bridge reached tipping point and accelerated. Failure punched her in the chest, then a moment later, the knockout slap of water. Everything went black. 
Okay, so that's the extract, and here are the cuts. Sabrin stepped from her cell into a cool evening. Okay, so traditionally I spend yonks analysing the first sentence of an extract, because let's trot out a catchphrase early, shall we? It carries a disproportionate amount of semantic freight. There we are. But I'd rather devote the bulk of this episode looking at stuff a bit deeper, so let's just do a kind of editorial triage on this opener. I mean, who am I kidding? I am going to go into way too much detail, but um, less than normal. I like that we have a named character, Sabrin. I, I, I like that the words are mostly simple. Sabrin stepped from her cell into a cool evening. No fancy schmancy stuff there. It's pretty straightforward. I, I don't like cell. I mean, like, it is a simple word, but it's too loaded and ambiguous. And it's abstract. Which, it doesn't sound like the kind of word that is. It's not like love or mellowness, right? Cell is a thing. But is it? I mean, I can't see it in this context. Actually, this is a rare situation where I want one or two adjectives to frame whether we're referring to a prison cell. Presumably not, since she can just step out of it. Sabrin stepped from her cell into a cool evening. There's no evidence of anyone else there. There's not a guard opening the door. There's not even a mention of a door or doorway or how she, she stepped out of a cell into a cool evening. But then, I mean, like, is it like a, a monk's cell? In uh, what are we looking at here? Later, this is made a bit clearer. Um, presumably, you know, she's been held somewhere against her will. But and here I would pound the desk if it didn't make the microphone peak. By then, it's too late. Thump, thump. Of course, I'm not suggesting for a second you can capture everything within the finite net of a first line, nor would you want to. I don't expect that, Simon. And fantasy and science fiction have to work so much harder than those uh, lazy toads over in the literary fiction department who can just gesture towards real life, life, which we exist in, right? And have precisely jack shit to establish conceptually. No laws of physics, no whether there's magic, what what, what the technological uh, position of the world is. None of that. They can just go, oh, here's a... I was eating a fish. Well, we all know what a fish is, right? That's... A, I mean, that... The, I, I don't think there's ever a piece of literary fiction that just started, oh, I was eating a fish. I, I would, I'd be on board with that. Like, if I read that book and it's the, the opening line, that's a strong choice, right, from the narrator. That's a strong voice. Oh, I was eating a fish. The, why is the narrator surprised that they're eating a fish? We're intrigued, right? They're, it's great, right? I would probably pick something more specific than fish. The danger, of course, though, when you go for specifics with fish is that you go into comedy territory people you know a specific fish feels like you're reaching for comedy oh haddock trout white crappy is the funniest fish but look cell isn't some alien concept to introduce it's a thing we already have we have cells right and and you're introducing unnecessary ambiguity by sort of delivering it to us in this way how has she got out of her cell by the way i even reading the whole extract i it's not clear to me at all or or is she just in a really nice cell with a with a balcony and a, a river view what's going on then the sentence closes with into the cool evening ah great she strolled out of the ambiguous location into the vague ambiance no simon we don't want mood we want a tangible tasteable concrete world the gibbous moon was low and tangerine 
Three adjectives is, and I, I feel fairly confident in stating this not as a suggestion but a rule, three adjectives is too many to describe a moon. By the way, notice how mentioning the moon makes your previous statement that it's evening redundant, right? We're, we're under 20 words and you've told us it's night time twice. <laughs> there is almost no way to deploy the word gibbous without coming off like a wanker. Believe me, I have tried so hard. I'm so desperate that the reader knows I know the word gibbous. And it seems gibbous seems lovely, doesn't it? Like, but, you know, like crepuscular and conurbations and palimpsest. It's one of those words that as soon as you use it, the reader feels like you're taking them into your office and making them look at your framed salesperson of the year certificates. It bespeaks deep, deep, insecurity using gibbous it's like all right will self come out your blanket for big words stop rolling fags and say something true and simple from the heart but the reason i think that the slight wonkiness of this image the gibbous moon was low and tangerine stands out is because you've opted for a single clause using the verb to be the gibbous moon was the noun was adjective it's not dynamic, we're not observing something in motion or some kind of change. It's just a static portraiture. Here is a thing being a thing. I don't believe that the colour and phase of the moon is the first thing that would attract Sabrin's attention. She sounds like she's on the balcony of a restaurant in Saint-Tropez having a romantic meal while reflecting on a gem heist. How does this observation reflect her emotional state and her concerns in this moment? She's walking out and I wonder, I wonder what the moon's up to right now. I wonder, I wonder whether it's waxing or waning and uh, its exact colour. That's the first piece of information I, walking out of my cell, want to notice. I don't think, unless the moon is like collapsing from the sky in a ball of flame, I don't think it's going to be the first thing she's looking at. She approached the iron railing in front of her. First cut in front of her. No reader is going to read the sentence, she approached the iron railing and picture her sort of moon walking back into the cell to hit an iron railing or floating upwards until she connects with a railing hanging in the air. In front of her is just this ugly bit of linguistic gristle to close on that's also redundant it's like getting to the bottom of your bubble tea to find a load of fag ends but i'm still not sure what you're actually trying to tell us here what do you mean she's quote stepped from her cell end quote but you've only told us where she was not where she is now so it's like saying well, here's a place that she used to be ignore that because she's not there anymore she stepped from that where is she now a balcony why would a cell come with a balcony? Why would it take you directly outdoors for that matter? Why doesn't it open onto a, a corridor or something like that? And what do you mean by an iron railing? I'm not being pedantic here. I genuinely am not sure because I don't have enough uh, context to go, oh, it's this type of iron railing. Like, is it a single iron railing running horizontally along the edge of something, like a kind of handrail or safety rail? Because as an aesthetic, that kind of safety rail thing doesn't seem to fit with anything else you show us in this scene or is she walking up to a, a series of iron railings like you'd have outside a school in which case it's not an iron railing 
I don't know. I'm confused. Uh, I realise when I say things like this that some listeners may think I'm terribly stupid because I seem to not be able to parse the most simple sentences, but I think there is genuine ambiguity here. And it doesn't matter if the reader can, after reading and rereading, sort of get the gist of what you're gesturing towards. We want precision. We don't, you don't want to feel, and you definitely don't want the reader to feel this early in the text, that you're not in control. The river Azar split letter down the middle like a gleaming scar. So I, I just for the for listeners, letter is a proper noun there, L-E-T-T-A. The river Azar split letter down the middle like a gleaming scar. So it took me a couple of reads to get that letter is, is probably the city. Two proper nouns introduced rapidly is always going to be dicey especially this early in a story especially when you haven't helped us establish a foothold in your world of physical stuff the image here the simile i really like the river azar split letter down the middle like a gleaming scar but it implies a sudden elevation i'm not clear that the protagonist has like you're suddenly asking us to consider the city essentially from an aerial view like is she so high that she can see see the entire city or is letter just this particular district or or what because while the simile may be true and i think it's a very sort of vivid one it's important that it remains within her point of view within your protagonist's perspective otherwise a few sentences into the story and we're pinging out of her head when just at the point when you want us to be uh, relating to her and feel very invested in what's going on with her we're pinging out of her head to do this sudden google maps view for the sake of an admittedly solid image gigantic braziers burned away to her left and right so I, I, when I was trying to do the first read of this, I laughed. Um, but, so, I mean, this is not a criticism of your story. It's just because I'm an idiot because I, I, I couldn't help reading it as gigantic phrases burned away to left at right and right. And then it just was a completely different story. Anyway, ignore that. Gigantic braziers burned away to her left and right, illuminating bronze statues of hooded figures battling octopi and betraying her location. Oh, what a curate's egg of a sentence, Simon. What a marriage of the excellent and profoundly rotten. Gigantic braziers burned away to her left and right. Well, look, aside from away, which you should cut if you can pass the flea-leg distinction between burning and burning away, then frankly your aesthetic sensibilities are too finely tuned for this brutish world. Aside from that, this is a good image. Exciting, vivid, clear. It's just and and it gives us a sense of the technology in the world right the world where there is our giant braziers yes i like it a lot illuminating bronze statues of hooded figures battling octopi i'm not going to reopen the can of worms that is the what's the correct plural of octopus discourse i'm actually surprisingly chilled out about that particular little theater of internecine strife in the world oh words uh i'm mainly a prescriptivist uh by nature, but I understand that descriptivism is probably the more sensible person's point of view, especially if you want to maintain any friendships whatsoever. But I will ask you this. How big are these octo, um, these pulpy aquatic boys? Because a statue of some cowled warrior fighting your standard size octopus, presumably on land, I'm not sure how you indicate that a statue's subject is supposed to be underwater... But if they're just 
fighting an octopus that's normally like as big as a house cat, right, on land, then it just looks like cruelty or, or mental illness. You might as well have a monument of someone swigging cough medicine and swearing at pigeons and betraying her location. So I, I'm, I'm still not sure what this little addendum is supposed to convey, because immediately afterwards you write, why was she being held on the embassy bridge? So one way to read it is the presence of these braziers betrays to her that her location is Embassy Bridge, because Embassy Bridge has gigantic braziers on it, right? Another, which employs the more conventional sense of betraying her location, but makes less sense in context, is that the braziers betray her location to hypothetical third parties. I don't know which you mean, Simon. And even if I could figure it out with enough analysis, frankly, that is more work than... I, the reader, want to be doing this early in the story. You haven't convinced me of your authority as a storyteller yet. I don't trust you to carry me through this, nor that the ambiguities will all be resolved and only exist now in service of some greater plot that we're going to pop like a bubble. And oh, what a reveal. Because then we're like, oh, she doesn't know where she is. Why does she seem so chilled out then? Why is she strolling out into the cool evening and regarding the Satsuma moon? A curfew bell peeled in the distance, and Sabrine's stomach dropped with sudden realisation. So, Small, pedantic, but worthwhile point if you're ever going to submit this. The curfew bell peeled. Uh, in terms of a bell peeling, it's P-E-A-L-E-D, not P-E-E-L-E-D, as you've written here, unless we're, you intend for us to understand that the curfew bell is uh, slowly shedding its outer skin. Or, well, in fact... Uh, peeled isn't an intransitive verb, right? It's a uh, it's a transitive verb. So I guess what you're suggesting is that the curfew it, bell would be peeling something else in the distance. Presum- perhaps the tangerine moon. A curfew bell peeled in the distance and Sabrine's stomach dropped with sudden realisation. Is her sudden realisation that the reader doesn't have enough information to feel invested in this scene. Is she like, oh shit, the author took advice to begin in the in media res to heart and now it feels like we left Netflix running overnight and it started midway through a season and we have no idea who these characters are or indeed what the sweet creeping crap is going on. Or is her sudden realisation that words as abstract as sudden realisation or an awful way to end a sentence? You might as well write infinite quintessence or palpable burgeoning. Far better to close with the physical reaction and Sabrin's stomach dropped. It's not like we read that and think, oh, her stomach's dropped. Is is that a good thing? Is she delighted? What could she possibly be feeling? We're human, presumably, as readers. We've experienced the tender ministrations of the sympathetic nervous system and we understand a dropping stomach indicates dread. Just get on with showing us the thing or the thought that occasioned that dread. We'll pick it up. A thundercrack. One, two more. The ground jarred. I don't like the ground jarred. Because you mean shook, right? But you were scared to use that word because it seemed like a cliche. The ground shook. Oh, it can't possibly be that boring. So you changed it to one that's kind of a synonym but doesn't really mean what you want it to mean. So now we're just confused because the ground didn't jar. No one after an earthquake, would ever look at everyone else and say, oh, did you feel, feel the ground jar just then? Because that would be mental. But a thundercrack, 
one, two more. That's fine, stylistically. At least it's neat. I like it a lot. In terms of structure, however, I, I do feel like you've filled our arms with laundry and now you're heaping more on top until we can't see. Here, have some more clothes. Have more. Have more. Have more. We've got a character we don't know, facing stakes we don't understand in a place we don't recognise for reasons even she can't fathom. And here's some bronze cephalopods that suggest some kind of ancient war. Uh, and oh, now it's all blowing up around us. What's blowing up? No time to explain. Come with me into this airship, which is also a giant lungfish called Andy. And wee, we're going back in time to find the five crystals that murdered your father. It's too much. Look, I love big, ambitious openings. I'm not against that at all. I'm not trying to clip your wings. I'm not trying to tether you to the uh, great lodestone of, of tedious realist convention. But I have no investment in Sabrin's predicament in this moment because I barely understand it. it it's like an anecdote told in a single breath by some wild-eyed guy bleeding from the forehead off his nut on trucker crank. And I think it's a common belief, but fundamentally wrong, to think you can just hurl this cannonade of incoherent but spectacular shit at a reader right at the outset, and they'll just be like, oh, that didn't make any sense at all. I must read on. And of course, all openings to any work of fiction have semantic lacunae. Who is this guy? What's his deal? How will he resolve this conflict? You can't unload language all at once. It has to be processed serially. That's how syntax works. That's how, you know, the the, the finite system of language works. We have to go one word and then another and then another. And it, it, it kind of spools out in this kind of uh, epistemological ticker tape. I, I'm not <laughs> suggesting you have to overcome the basic limitations of language existing in time and space and find some kind of like injectable... Uh, super informal knowledge that we can just put into the reader and we immediately know all knowledge of the story. I understand that, right? I, I'm not suggesting that. Of course, your opening and the order in which you present information to us is going to raise questions. That's part of the thing that tempts us through the story. It's part of the push-pull dynamic that drives all fiction. But you need to build fast an apparatus by which we can make predictions within your world and appraise threat because otherwise there's no tension right if we don't know what the rules are then you can throw all this spectacular big budget hollywood stuff at us and i don't know does this matter is it, i mean like i actually got to the end of this extract with the horrible intimation that this might be some kind of dream sequence foregrounding Sabrin's fears about an upcoming heist stroke insurrection. Um, you know, she's planned this thing, but here she is in this sort of slightly incoherent dream sequence where it's all going wrong. <sighs> Slap hit the water, wake up. Oh, it, it turns out it, that's all still to come. And, you know, like, and this is the thing is like, I, I, I don't want it to be a high octane fake out. Might not be right. But I'm, that was the only, that was the clearest way that I could justify why it didn't really make sense and we were just being thrown into the thick of it. And it's hard, right? Like, I get it. Arguably, the opening of my latest novel, The Ice House, commits precisely the sin I've just castigated this extract for. And I am castigating the extract, Simon, not you, because you're great and the text is corrigible, improvable, simply a step on the road 
towards a brilliant, compelling, comprehensible story, maybe many stories. You know, it's a learning process. All of this is training. It's really good to write stuff. And, and, and it, you know, it's not a reflection on you as a writer. It's not definitely not a reflection on you as a, a person. We're just kind of working on these things. But I think even then, in my example, um, and I'm not, you know, turning this into an apology of uh, Tim Clare as a as an author, but I think uh, maybe the difference is um, even in, in in my version, it, you know, it's partly mediated by a whole corpus of information. Some readers will be importing from the previous book because the Ice House is the second in a series, so there's whole whole loads of characters and a, a kind of like a sense of the world that many readers reading it will already have. And in terms of pacing, that opening scene in in my book is pretty slow. You know, like it's just, we, it has got some weird stuff in it, but it's also just two characters having a chat. Uh, the scene doesn't blow up around them or anything. They're just in in the world, in the environment. And, and I'm actually pretty straightforward about their backgrounds and all these kind of things. It, it, I don't hold anything back where I can help it. Henry David Thoreau said, our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify. Of course, if he'd followed his own dictum, he would have cut that to simplify and you know me i love detail i actually think henry david Thoreau is wrong i think our life is detail the great pantheon of forms that reveals itself to us when we open our eyes is truly miraculous if you <laughs> think that paying attention to them is frittering your life away uh, i have news for you that is our lives but to appreciate it we need occasional simplicity we need occasional silence we need an occasional palate cleanser that becomes the ground from which the world of forms arises. We need calm, we need focus, the bold one-pointedness of attention. My suggestion to you, Simon, and I'm about to go into some neuroscience that I am at a level of knowledge now I know is oversimplifying things, but uh, I think it's a useful lens that we don't often apply, so here we go. I think it's worth thinking about opening by focusing the reader's attention on one clear problem. So as soon as you do that, something, you know, oh, what is it? It might be Sabrina going, why am I here? It might be the fact that she's in a cell. It might be her realising she needs to be somewhere else. So we need a character and a clear single conflict, right? There, you've stimulated the neurotransmitter cortisol. And we switch from the brain's default mode network to the brain's focus mode. The reader is now going, ah, there's a problem. Huh. And then the body starts re responding to that. And they are now, you've hooked them a little bit. Then you have to make us care. So this is stimulating the release of uh, the neurotransmitter oxytocin, which releases, which creates bonding and trust. And by, so you, then you need to give us this human character to identify with. So you need to show us Sabrin being worried or you need to make her do something good that makes us root for her or you need to show someone else in peril that we can care about but we need something that makes us bond with the story we're worried so now you've got our attention and now you've got our attention you use that attention to make us bond with the story and the characters and then once you've got those two flowing just fucking murder us drag us through the ringer beat the hell out of our foolish foolish hearts once you've made that neurobiological covenant with us simon my friend we will follow you into the belly of the beast like a labrador following a plate of sausages but don't shoot your fireworks all at once they're wasted if we're not paying attention slow down 
refine the focus. Establish a beachhead. Then launch your attack. And that's it. If you'd like to submit your own work, I'm looking for the first page of your super polished best as you can make it. Just uh, worked and worked and worked to death novel or story. When you're ready, go to my website, timclairpert.co.uk and click on the contact me button. I just want a title, your name and the first 250 words. I don't need a synopsis. I don't need an explanation. I don't need your apologies. Just the text, please. If you'd like to support this show, if you think, oh, this is cool, it's cool that this exists, I want Tim Clare to continue making it and I want him to be reasonably happy while he does so, then here's how you can help. One, share episodes on social media by email, in writers' forums, on your blog. You know how the internet works. However you want to do it, toss a link out into the ether. Your good word means so much more than mine because you're independent. So please do that and thank you to all of you who do so tirelessly it really means a lot to rate and review the show on itunes and subscribe on whatever podcatcher you use or on soundcloud that helps me get episode to you because i have a wonky release schedule because i'm a dad and periodically poorly and also not great at organizing myself um so look if you do that and subscribe it helps me get it to you it helps other folks find it and it's just really helpful whenever i'm talking to someone when I'm trying to sell a book or where I'm talking to someone who wants to sponsor an episode and I can go, look, we've got this many uh, 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 subscribers. It, it just takes a few seconds. It really helps. And thank you for those of you who've done that. Three, I am, would you believe it, a professional author? Please buy my books. You know, this it, that's the core of what I do. This show doesn't make me any money um, and I need to sell books to survive. So look, The Honours and The Ice House are books one and two in the honors series they're out now um there are links to them in the show notes if you want to go and treat yourself buy them for yourself buy copies for friends yes look they are fantasy but put it this way do i bore you am i boring you now do i strike you as someone instead who maybe gives a shit about making an effort in fiction even to the detriment of his own mental health right that sounds plausible you can see how i can put all this advice into practice if you read the book and and you'll be helping me keep a roof over my head and pay the bills thank you so much for those of you who bought my book and have gone online to review it and have shared links to it um it makes such a difference it makes the difference is why i can continue doing this thing that i actually love four if you want you can drop a few beans into the old digital guitar case via my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Again, there's a link in the show notes. I'm still kind of shocked folks are um, kind enough to toss me a, a wooden groat or two when everything I do podcast-wise is free at the point of delivery. It's really important to me that I put all my stuff out um, from this end of things in terms of writer support for free because I think there's so much stuff behind paywalls. There's so much stuff that's behind sort of Patreon bar barriers. Uh, and if we genuinely want writing to be accessible to everyone then one of the first barriers that has to come down is the financial one to writing we go oh all you need is you don't need anything to write you just need a a pen and a piece of paper yeah but people who've got a lot of money have loads and loads of in invisible boosts and i think it's really I ju it's just important to me that i give you folks everything i can for now but if you want to help me with my hosting costs for my website and soundcloud both which cost me money then um you know it's appreciated um 
and it's just a hugely kind thing to do um those of you who've sort of supported me like that because just because you want to you know because you, you're not you're not getting anything for it um cheers very much it's how i can keep doing this and, and thank you right that's it i have several books to write and some mental health to coax uh, back into the black uh, i hope you're well and treating yourself kindly and occasionally finding the space to revel in this bizarre arising weirdness we call life isn't it amazing that anything exists at all why why is there anything what's it all resting upon i'll let you know if i figure that out in the meantime be swell and i wish you a wonderful writing week <laughs>